0: Welcome back to the Asset Allocator Podcast, where we try to take a look under the bonnet of the market with leading asset allocators. I'm David Thorpe, Contributing Editor at Asset Allocator, and joining me today are Eric Lowe, Senior Portfolio Manager at Aberdeen, and David Baxter, Funds Editor at Asset Allocator's sister title, Investors Chronicle. Today we are looking at the topic of ESG portfolio construction. Thank you both for joining me. Eric, the terminology around ESG is much discussed and much debated, actually. And certainly the regulator is looking at how the different terms, not just ESG, but things like impact, things like sustainability are used and at ways that maybe those terms can be tightened up. If there is regulatory action, do you think it would be potentially positive for the asset class? Yes, I think so. I mean, it'll be, certainly be helpful to have some, some more clarity
1: been operating in a little bit of a vacuum for the last past few years, mainly adopting what's been used across in, in Europe with their SFDR classifications. I think what you're talking about here is the FCA's um, sustainability disclosure requirements, SDR. So for background, they published a consultation paper in October. The consultation came to an end at the end of January. We're awaiting their conclusions in in the next few months. What they've published, though, it looks where they're likely to settle is essentially three categories of sustainable funds, sustainable focus, sustainable improvers, and sustainable impact. So, yeah, any clarity and consistency will certainly be helpful. There are still some question marks, for example, what the thresholds will be for each of these different categories. So, you know, if a fund has some sustainable focus, but also some impact, you know, where the threshold is, the boundaries between those two classifications also how these will apply to non-equity funds and also multi-asset funds or MPS that invest in a range of, of funds across the three categories and also it seems like this you know the sort of the burden of regulatory compliance might be a bit of a disadvantage for smaller firms that um, you know need to deal with that.
0: Thank you Dave with Investors Chronicles audience you must have quite a lot of interest from the retail readership but how do they think about topics like ESG sustainability do they understand the terms do they want to understand the terms
2: yeah it's an interesting question Uh, i mean i'd imagine there's clearly been a lot of appetite whether you look at kind of active funds or you look at say the etf space even amidst the kind of market difficulties of last year i suppose you've still had kind of esg has been a, a driving factor in kind of demand but i don't you you kind of get the sense there is a lot of confusion And it's interesting, Eric, you mentioned the kind of, you know, the different approaches, say sustainability or impact, or you can have things like exclusions. I suppose one interesting source of confusion is, I suppose, the fact that some of these funds kind of do a bit of everything anyway. So it'll be interesting to see kind of how you get that kind of passing out of the different approaches. Thank you.
0: And um, Eric, I mean, how do you actually make ESG work in model portfolios given that? risk uh, appetites risk tolerance of of clients or the risk profile i just say that from the point of view that many natural esg equity portfolios would probably have a growth slash quality bias that works in a lot of market conditions and works for a lot of clients perhaps most of the time but it's maybe not how you'd ideally uh, want to do it are we seeing much of a, a shift of esg business to those models versus say the bespoke approach
1: yeah, I think there's a number of questions in there. I think first, of, in terms of the risk profile, it's important to realize that the MPS is a, is a range of portfolios. There's mm-hmm. actually five portfolios t- targeting different levels of risk. On the sort of inbuilt quality bias, it's a good point because I think within the ESG or sustainable investing, there's a natural tendency for the types of companies to be you know, quite growthy, reasonably high quality, but also tend to be smaller companies so the funds that invest in that space tend to be you know invested further down the market cap and much more growth oriented than you know a broader benchmark or more core fund I mean, that, that can be good. If you wind the clock back a couple of years, growth was in the, in the ascendancy. And that you know, was certainly a tailwind for these types of funds. I think that helped actually drive quite a lot of flows in, into the sustainable area. But we have had quite a severe market rotation, which is you know that tailwind had turned last year into quite a severe headwind. So we, last year, we saw growth funds underperform by quite a lot. In fact, I think the MSCI Acqui growth index underperformed its value equivalent by something like 23% last year. So it is a challenge. It's something we've been quite conscious of. We do tend to like to blend funds with different characteristics. It's more of a challenge in sustainable MPS than our Aberdeen MPS, which doesn't have a sustainable objective because of this inbuilt bias. But we've You know, within our equity funds, we do have one fund, which is actually a a value fund. It's a spar Invest global ethical value, a little bit Mm -hmm. unusual in the space being a value fund, but it it really does help from a portfolio construction perspective, brings us something different, Uh, and it paid dividends last year. That fund was essentially flat. It was down Mm -hmm. less than a percent last year. The the broad benchmark was down nearly eight percent, and the sort of peer group medium for sustainable funds was down over 15 percent last
2: year. I've noticed as well, there have been a few kind of ethical or like ESG value funds. I think, for example, there's an investment trust that does US, sort of sustainable US income, which is a mixture of a lot of slightly contrasting areas. But how does that approach work in sort of funds that you're interested in? I mean, does it become the kind of engagement approach where you're still focusing on, you know, maybe stocks and areas you, you might perceive as bad from an ESG perspective? Or is it more you can still find a way to find value shares that are not at all in those kind of industries?
1: It's a bit of both. For the Spar Invest fund specifically, I mean, Spar Invest is a Danish asset manager. They've got a number of firm-wide exclusions, things like tobacco, thermal coal, controversial weapons, and uh, companies that contravene the UN Global Compact. In addition for their ethical range, they've got a number of further negative screens on based on sector or, or climate exclusions. Uh, and then on top of that, they're looking to invest in Companies with stronger ESG credentials, so a bit of a positive skew there. But the engagement thing is actually very important that they do have a couple of stocks within the portfolio that are quite heavy carbon emitters, but they're very closely engaging with these companies and have support their plans to, to decarbonise over you know, 10, 15 year time periods.
0: And Eric, there are lots of new funds coming to the market and i'm sure you're getting lots and lots of pitches and and requests to meet those guys but there are still areas with relatively poor esg coverage for example asset allocators on databases show that dfms use only five active us equity esg funds and only one active japan equity fund how much of a problem is it for you when you're putting together portfolios to avoid, I suppose, yourself and all of your peers crowding into a small number of, of funds and therefore all having the same returns and it being harder, I guess, to diversify, but also to add alpha?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's, it's something we have grappled with. So I mentioned our Aberdeen MPS. So this is a an MPS with, with the a Sustainable Ob- Objective. And for the Aberdeen MPS, the equity allocation is invested on a, on a regional basis. Um, so US, Europe, UK, emerging markets and so forth for sustainable MPS, we've taken a global approach we break it down into the UK and global equity, primarily because we've really struggled to find regional sustainable funds. We have had a look we've explored the area but we could find good funds in some areas but not in all regions, so I think that's the main reason we've at this point preferred to go down the global approach You'd asked me a couple of years ago, I said as the sustainable area matures, it probably would break down into more, you know, sustainable but regional, but I think I've the way it seems it's going is becoming more specialised global. So, you know, Mm -hmm. global thematics and and things Mm -hmm. like that. In terms of crowded funds, I think it's also a good question. I think a couple of years ago when the style of investing sustainable and with that growth tailwind I mentioned earlier was in the ascendancy, I think it was a lot of – attracted a lot of inflows into sustainable funds and sustainable portfolios. And a lot of those did go into – some funds had exceptionally strong growth – uh, and grew quite big and there's a bit of a liquidity mismatch you know running a lot of assets especially in smaller companies as as these do tend to be so we've been quite conscious of that and have actually walked away from some high profile funds primarily due to those liquidity concerns. Thank you.
0: David I guess many investors do like to take a view on, on regions and, and on parts of the world and US equities have certainly been popular with with uh, retail and advised clients in, in recent years but yes. G, us equity is is a is a sparse hunting ground what what have you been hearing for your
2: readers it's interesting just thinking about the kind of regional point um, I mean I'm not sure on the retail side or the professional side I guess the level of demand for that kind of thing I was just thinking does it basically leave you more beholden then to that massive us bias still and are there kind of regions that you end up having to kind of f- forego because I, I remember i was looking at regional esg funds a couple of years ago and there were perhaps some areas like em where you're, you're starting to see a product proliferation but again again as mentioned that's, that's probably an area where you're more likely to do the sort of engagement approach rather than if you're a fan of it, a more exclusionary approach for example yeah.
1: i don't think there's any areas where you'd not be able to invest it's just whether mm. you'd able to be able to build a nicely diversified robust yeah. portfolio you know for example in emerging markets so you know a lot of the global funds we invest in do have quite a diverse spread of assets geographically including emerging markets but i haven't seen too many you know specifically you mentioned Japan earlier i haven't really seen too many you know sustainable japanese equity funds or sustainable emerging market equity funds hopefully in the, in the future that will be something which uh, there's more product
0: development Thank you. And Eric, how how do you think about uh, fixed income in your sustainable mandates? You know, there's one, one one major debate, I think, among fixed income ESG managers is whether you can ever have government bonds in there or what government bonds you can have in there. That's certainly part of it. But the other side of it is that many of the the sorts of companies that would naturally be excluded from a, a sustainable type fund, for example, tobacco companies, don't tend to need to issue a lot of bonds because they're very cash generative. So there's almost like an advantage that an ESG bond manager has relative to an ESG equity manager because lots of the stocks that might be popular on the equity side there aren't those bonds, so you're not having to miss out relative to a non-ESG here. But h- how do you think about that? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, another good question. So
1: we we do invest well across the fixed income spectrum. We do have government bonds. The, the approach we've taken is for developed government bonds because there aren't really there's no really such thing as a sustainable developed government bond fund. The approach we've taken is we will use those primarily for portfolio construction and diversification reasons. But for developed market government bonds, we're quite happy to be ESG neutral. So we're buying passive funds which track the whole of market, whether it be for gilts or, or, or global government bonds. We we'd label that ESG neutral and it's definitely passive funds for us. What we wouldn't want is to buy an active fund that doesn't have a sustainable objective and the manager goes out and buys tobacco stocks, tobacco bonds, I should say. For credit funds, we are looking for them to be at, at a minimum ESG integrated and with the with stewardship program as well. And I suppose one thing for fixed income I should also mention is we tend to be a little bit more granular than most within fixed income. So we've got several allocations to gilts, global government bonds, investment-grade credit, short-duration investment-grade credits, high yield. I think one of the problems we have found, we've, I mean, we have been able to find sustainable funds for all the different areas within credit, but there's not a very wide choice. Quite often, what the type of thing we see is a... Um, a sort of multi-asset fixed income fund, you know, something like a sustainable strategic bond fund, which invests across different categories within fixed income. But we, we prefer to pick those out um, at a little slightly more granular level.
0: And how do you think about when, when you are going down that scale in, into, for example, high yield you mentioned? I mean, liquidity must be, it's, it's important in high yield anyway, but it yeah. must be sort of doubly or triply important in sort of ESG high yield? I mean, it is important. I mean, the fund we use, it's a
1: relatively new fund. It's a fund from M&G. They've got a sustainable global high-yield bond fund. Obviously, M&G are big fixed-income investors. It's it's not a big fund. I think they'd like to grow it substantially. So, I mean, for the fund at the moment, liquidity is not really a big issue.
0: Thank you. David, what do you think about that question? I know you've looked at ESG and, and bonds money times. How do you um, see the evolution of that uh, space, because obviously there's a lot of attention paid to to the equity side. I suppose everybody in the world has a view on ESG equity and, and you know, whether Tesla is or isn't. But on the bond fund, the, the conversation is
2: maybe at an earlier stage. Yeah, I guess most people on equity still think Tesla isn't, don't they? If you look at who, who holds it. Yeah, but it, I definitely agree with it does seem that things are still very much not nascent but much less kind of mature you are seeing a bit more of the taxonomy coming through and some of the you know ideas of the different ways in which bonds might be sustainable or not and what you're looking to achieve I suppose what, what strikes me again on David you mentioned the sort of crowded trades issue it seems you do have a, more of that issue in in the bond space I mean we've mentioned before in the database you have what two or three bond funds that are just like the rathbone ethical yes, bonds and, and um, the thread needle social, social impacts yeah social bond fund yeah run wonderfully by a person called mr bond yeah. but yes those two those two funds on the active side are, are almost the only things held <laughs> so you're still quite tied to quite specific approaches and the rathbone fund for example is very it's done really well over the years and tends to offer quite a nice yield but i always wonder if people take issue with the fact that a lot of it's Allocations and financials, for example, if you're thinking, I want an <laughs> yes. ethical exposure. And, and, is that- and, and ironically, they don't do the government bonds one, but, you know, they do the financials, mm.
0: but they don't do the government bonds. Mm. So you're kind of, many people would have to view the view other, the other way around, right? Yeah. Whether you can ever find an ethical government, can you ever find an Eskil bank? I won't say anymore because we have <laughs> lawyers, but uh, there you go. Okay, well, that's all we've got time for, I think. But uh, thank you for joining me today. Eric Lowe, Senior Portfolio Manager at Aberdeen, and David Baxter, Funds Editor at Investors Chronicle. And thank you all for listening. And do remember to tune in to the next Asset Allocator podcast, which will be released in a couple of weeks' time. Thank you.
1: Hi.